Okay. So uh, we are in the middle of uh, principle number eight. So principle uh, eight is the uh, the principle that relates to the divinity of Torah, Torah Last week, we talked about two of the sub-principles which are involved, having to do with uh, uh, the necessity for Torah Shabbat. We spoke a lot about that, how so many of the just a, a simple reading of the Torah will be impossible without Torah Shabbat, and how many of the mitzvahs which we have also would be impossible to fulfill properly without the Torah Shabbat telling us exactly uh, the manner in which the, the mitzvah is going to be done. The Torah doesn't give us nearly enough information to be able to, uh, to figure that out. So over here, what we have is um, now, another uh, element of this uh, of this mitzvah, one which is actually uh, creates a uh, somewhat of a difficulty to be able to understand and to be able to appreciate uh, the uh, the intent of the uh, the principle, uh, and that is that if we believe that if we we believe that both Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat was given to uh, Moshe at uh, at Har Sinai. And if that's the case, that both Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat were given to uh, to Moshe Har Sinai, and we also believe that that Torah, all those laws and all of that the Torah, was faithfully transmitted from one generation to the to the next, until all the way from 2448 to where we are today in 5781. So then, how are we going to be able to explain? How, uh, certainly for those, uh, those of us who are doing that filmy, how are we going to explain the existence of multiple machlokasim and almost every page of shah, if not every page of shah? If there's going to be disagreements along the way, one would expect that if something is faithfully transmitted from one generation to, uh, to the next, and Moshe Rabbeinu got all of this information on Har Sinai, so how is it possible for any uh, any disagreement to uh, to be able to uh, to arise? Uh, that seemingly uh, would be indicative of the fact that what we call the faithful transmission of the Torah, perhaps is not so faithful. It's one of two things seemingly. Either perhaps not everything was given in Har Sinai, which would be bad, or even if everything was given in Har Sinai, maybe the transmission of that is not so faithful. And as a result of that, we now have disagreements about uh, what the, uh, the laws should be, which also would not be a very good uh, answer for us to, uh, to, uh, to accept. So the question is, how are we going to be able to reconcile it? How are we going to be able to manage this difficulty of maintaining the, uh, the integrity of the Misora without, uh, without implicating uh, that Misora, the, that, uh, the, the faithfulness of that transmission, um, uh, despite the presence of Machlokas. Now, the truth is, and uh, certainly those of you who have been around for a while know that this uh, topic of Edo Chaim is a favorite topic of mine. So but we're not going to go into all of the, uh, the, uh, the details related to that, but ultimately it's important in order to understand why the existence of Machlokas does not uh, um, uh, implicate the faithfulness of the transmission of Torah, so in order to be able to answer that question, so we have to understand a little bit about this principle of, which Chazal said, the Gemara in Erevin, uh, says, that these and those are the words of the, uh, of, of the living God. Now, if one person said red and one person said green, 
So then we would say in terms of a favorite color or something. So we'd say, okay, there's different opinions. This one prefers red, this one prefers green. It's not a big deal if it's just a matter of, of preference. But when it comes to matters of halacha, so then in one opinion says something is mutter, and the other opinion says something is aser, so that becomes difficult to be able to reconcile how How can you say that both of them are going to be correct? They're representative and expressive of the words of the living God. Seemingly, one opinion is correct and one opinion is incorrect. Either it's aser or it's mutter, but it can't be both aser and mutter. And whichever one is correct, if it turns out that it's actually aser, that means that the one who says it's mutter is wrong. And if the halakha actually is that it's mutter, then the one who says that it's aser is actually wrong. But to go ahead and say, what's two plus two? One person says four, one person says five, we would say, it's a matter of perspective, it's a matter of opinion. Who are you to go ahead and impose your view on somebody else that two plus, plus two equals four? I, I, I identify with two plus two is five. So if a person, uh, you know, well, that, we would say that that's a, a ridiculous uh, notion to go ahead and say. So how are we going to go ahead and reconcile it? So there are many opinions. This is one of the, uh, you know, in terms of the philosophy of halacha. So this is one of the most discussed issues about how to uh, understand the existence of machlogis in, uh, in, in halacha. So one is to say that when uh, two opinions, uh, uh, two authorities express an opinion, even if those opinions are contradictory, they, they're not going to be in direct opposition of one another. Meaning that one is going to be correct in one particular context, and the other opinion will be correct in a second context. And even though it seems at first glance that they're talking about the exact same thing, and therefore, there is a direct irreconcilable contradiction between these two authorities. The truth is, is that it's really not. If you dig a little bit deeper, you'll realize that there is no, uh, there's actually no machlokas, uh, which is there. So let's uh, say, let's give it as an example. Um, Ruben comes along and he says that Einstein was the greatest scientist that ever lived. And Shimon comes along and says Newton was the greatest scientist that ever lived. So we now have Machlokas. We have Machlokas between Ruven and Shimon. Who is the greatest scientist? Was it Einstein or was it Newton? And they could go ahead and they could have, you know, hours long debates, which you could watch, uh, you know, endlessly on YouTube for all the different debates about which one of the two scientists is greater. Was it Newton? Was it Einstein? And debates and sub-debates and uh, tertiary debates and all sorts of things related to that about who's going to be the greatest scientist. And it would seem that both of them are uh, that they're, they're, they're two these two opinions are just a matter of uh, that they're, they're irreconcilable. It's either one or the other. Yes, Alan. What about the example, for example, of Hillel and Shammai and the Hanukkah candles? Um, so, uh, if you remind me, uh, we will uh, we'll get to that maybe in, in, in the second explanation or third explanation. So, when I when I forget to mention that explicitly. Uh, remind me again. To go ahead and, and do so. So, um, so when we have this debate, which is going on uh, on my screen, we'll say uh, Al is going to be on Einstein's side and uh, Mel will be on Newton's side. So, when Al and Mel are arguing about the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, academic achievements or the scientific achievements, respectively, of Newton and Einstein, so we'd say that listen. 
Everybody else on this uh, Zoom sure is going to have to take sides. Either you're going to be on L side uh, for Einstein, or you're going to be on Mel side for Newton. But everybody's got to go ahead and they've got to pick a side. But the truth is, Elu Elu tells us that it may very well be that both L and Mel are correct. But it depends on if we have to refine the question a little bit more. And we're no longer just talking just in the most general terms, who is the greatest scientist of all time? But really what we're talking about is, it may very well be that when Al says Einstein is the greatest scientist, what he was referring to in his head, at least, was of the 20th century. So in the 20th century, so then Einstein is going to win, so we can beat out Newton because Newton didn't survive for the 20th century. So he can't possibly win those, uh, those accolades because he wasn't there. And when Mel went ahead and said that it was Newton, he's referring to the greatest scientists of the 18th century. So it turns out, that both of them are actually correct. And we just need to refine what we were searching for a little bit more. And if we refine a little bit more, and we're not saying of all time, we're talking about the respective centuries, or we talk about during their lifetimes. So then we could go ahead and we could say, actually, both Al and Mel are correct. Just it depends on which century we're going to go ahead and focus our attention. Or we might say that when Al answered that Einstein is the greatest scientist, he was thinking in his head the greatest scientist who dealt with the theory of relativity. So in terms of relativity, so Einstein is going to go ahead and he's going to win that, uh, that battle. And when Mel went ahead and said that Newton was the greatest scientist, he was dealing with the scientists who dealt with gravity or introduce gravity, discover gravity, put words to gravity, however you're going to go ahead and describe it. But once again, each one had their specialty. And within their given specialty, each one was the best in their field. So to go ahead and talk about things in the most broad terms, uh, in terms of being the greatest scientist, so then Al mentions Einstein, Mel mentions Newton, it seems like there's a mafloger. But if we start fine-tuning exactly what they're discussing, whether they're discussing 20th century or 18th century, or whether they're discussing relativity or they're discussing gravity, so that allows for both of them to be able to be, uh, to be correct. So in a similar way, you could have, you could explain many disagreements in halacha in, the, in that same way. That if you given these conditions, the Rambam is correct. Given these conditions, the Rush is correct. So they're not talking necessarily about exactly the same scenario. And that's one of the methods that you'll find because we, we actually don't we make an effort to avoid there being machlokas in halacha. And one of the ways that we avoid, that we, uh, that we will uh, approach a halacha in order to minimize halacha is to say that even though it looks like the Rambam and the Rush are in direct opposition of one another, the Rambam was really talking about this case and the Rush was talking about this case. And the Rush would agree in the Rambam's case that the Rambam would be correct. And the Rambam would, would agree that the Rush is correct in his particular case. And if we go ahead and we sort of limit the scope of their opinions to very specific scenarios rather than very broad scenarios, so that's a way to be able to reconcile disagreements and say, you know what, there's really not such of a disagreement anyways. And if there's really not such of a, uh, a disagreement anyways, so there's really not that much of a machlokas. So that is one way to go ahead and explain the concept of both opinions are actually accurate, are 100% accurate. But what we need to do is we need to go ahead and limit the scope of those opinions. They're not as broad as we initially thought. 
they're actually very uh, very limited in terms of their uh, their application. Now, a second approach uh, tells us that uh, even though we say that Moshe Rabbeinu received both Torah Shabbat as well as Torah Shabbat Peh on Har Sinai in the twenty four in the year twenty four forty eight when he's on Har Sinai, so he received both Torah Shabbat as well as Torah Shabbat Peh, but that doesn't mean that Moshe Rabbeinu actually went through every Shiloh which would ever exist in the history of mankind. For example, we'll just take as a simple example, Moshe Rabbeinu may have never used the word electricity in his discussions with HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Harsina. That just wasn't, it, it didn't exist at the time, the technology didn't exist at that time, or whether or not uh, you should make a, a, a Hatsala ambulance, should it be electric or should it be uh, uh, you know, gas combustion uh, engine. Uh, so whether or not, uh, you know, whether or not there's a preference in halacha for one or the other, uh, it would be pretty safe to assume that Moshe Rabbeinu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not discuss that Shiloh. So if they didn't discuss that Shiloh, so what do we mean when we say that the totality of Torah and Torah was given from HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai? If they didn't discuss every last Shiloh, so what did they discuss? So this second approach tells us that although they didn't discuss the details of every last Shiloh, what they did discuss was all of the relevant principles and applicable principles which could then be used to answer every Shiloh which would ever come up. So Moshe Rabbeinu knew all about what's involved in doing the malacha of kindling a fire. He knew the details and knew the parameters and he knew all of the things related to that. And knowing all of the things related to that, so then we now in the year 5781, we go ahead and apply those very same principles which Moshe Rabbeinu did discuss with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we apply them lamaisa to the new technology, which is gas engines versus electric cars and all of those things. And we discuss it as if it's new, as if it's a new Shila, and it is a new Shila. But the principles are something which trace themselves back to Hakar's uh, who's teaching Moshe Rabbeinu all of those all of those principles. And therefore, what we have when you find two rabbis in the Mishnah, or two rabbis in the Gemara, or two rabbis in the 21st century disagreeing about a particular halachic matter, so they're not disagreeing. That's not indicative of a breakdown in the authenticity and the faithfulness of the transmission of the Mesorah. The Mesorah is pa passed down perfectly well. The question is, uh, like we like to say, the question is going to be a matter of definition. What is the definition of, uh, of let's say, cooking? That's the example that I always use. They are, for uh, most of the, the history of mankind, the way cooking was a, a part of the definition of cooking always included a heat source. Whether the heat source was the sun, whether the heat source was the fire, whether the heat source was the hot springs of Tiberia is what the Gemara talks about. But inevitably, there was always a source of heat in order to transform a food from being inedible into being edible or hard into soft, whatever the other uh, cooking involved. Then suddenly in the 20th century, Bakar's Baruch comes along and he creates a microwave. And with the appearance of a microwave, suddenly you could cook a food uh, from raw to a state of edible without having a source of heat. And now all of a sudden, everybody is, all the postmen are scratching their heads and they're wondering what happened to our working definition of cooking? 
A working definition of cooking until the 20th century always included a source of heat. Now suddenly technology allows us to cook without a source of heat. Does that qualify halakhically as cooking? Is that not cooking? If you microwave cook on Shabbos, did you do the Isidaraisa of Bishel or you didn't do the Isidaraisa of Bishel? If you go ahead and you microwave meat and milk together, did you violate the Isidaraisa of cooking meat and milk together or do you not violate the Isidaraisa of, uh, of cooking meat and milk together? So now we have to go back. So now as Toskin discussed this matter, so they're not discussing whether or not cooking meat and milk is allowed or whether cooking on Shabbos is allowed. Their debate relates to whether this is called cooking. Does this meet the, the halachic definition of cooking or does it not? And then all of the other halachas are going to be novea or they're going to emanate from that. They're going to stem from that. But first you have to go ahead and you have to uh, come up with a definition. And Postkin will disagree as far as definitions are concerned. Some Postkin will say that this does meet the definition of cooking. Some Postkin will say this does not meet the definition of cooking. But none of that has to do with a breakdown or a lack of liability and credibility of the Mesorah. It has to do with the fact that this is a new Shiloh which came along. And being that this is a new Shiloh which came along uh, based on new technology, it was not addressed by earlier generations. And now it's up to us in our present generation, in our present circumstance, to go ahead and to analyze to the best of our ability what is the working definition of cooking and how are we going to go ahead and manage and manage that? So now, um, now all of this, now in, in this regard, so it may very well be that since we don't have a definitive definition, so it may very well be that all of these opinions, Abel, Abel, Gino, Kim Chaim tells me that both of these actually are reflective of Torah two principles, which were given to, to Moshe Abenu on her Sinai and faithfully transmitted from one generation to the next. And you can't say that one is more correct than the other. That's the essence of Elu Elu Dilo Kim Chaim, that both of these are, are, are authentic reflections of the principles given to Moshe at Har Sinai. Halacha, however, and that's the very next line of the Gemara the Ereven, Halacha, however, mandates that when it comes to actually uh, applying it into practice, you can only do one thing. An example which I give is for wherever uh, any of you are located at this moment. If I told you, let's meet at Devon in California in 20 minutes. So how do you drive from where you are now to Devon in California? So there are multiple routes that you can take. Some people, depending on where they're starting out, they may decide that they're going to go ahead and they're going to take Crawford to Devon and then take Devon to Devon in California. Some people may opt to go McCormick. Some people may go straight to Dodge and take that up as it turns into uh, to California. And when you're going to go ahead and you're going to turn east, you can turn east on uh, Howard. You can turn east on Tui. You can turn east on Devon. So there's all sorts of different ways. Each one of us may actually get in the car and take a different route from where we are to get to uh, Devon in California. At the end of the day, we'll all be there. Some may be there a little sooner, some may be there a little bit later, but every one of those routes will actually get us there. And every time you get in the car, you're fully aware that there are multiple routes that you could take from your present location to your final destination. And every time you do so, you may take a different route in order to be able to do so, just to test them all out. But as far as halacha lemais is concerned, halacha lemaisa means every time you're going to drive to Tui and Devan, 
You can only take one route that time. That's all you can do. You can't take multiple routes at the same time. You have to take one route that particular time. So that's the way halacha works. And it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It may be just a matter of preference. Uh, you know, you could set in ways, or you could set in Google. You do want polls. You don't want polls. The scenic route, the non-scenic route. There's all sorts of different uh, uh, variables that you could put into your Google Maps. That you could put into ways which will allow you to be able to take different routes, and that will take you along different ways. It, it knows that you have an iPass or you don't have an iPass. Which way it's going to send you every time you get to a toll. So that has to do with uh, preferences and what the what the what things you put in there. So halacha may very well work in a similar manner that there could be multiple routes which are going to allow you to be able to reach the same destination, the same place. And it's really just a matter of uh, various uh, personal preferences or, or different factors which are relevant, which will go ahead and finally, when the rubber hits the road, uh, the route that you're going to end up, uh, you're going to end up uh, choosing. So that is explanation number, uh, explanation number, uh, number two. Now, Explanation number three is what I think is the most fascinating of, uh, of all of them. And this is the one from Rabbi Salter. Rabbi Salter has the most, um, it's almost like jarring uh, approach to the, uh, the principle of Elu Velu Jivel Kilchayim, because Rabbi Salter says that, and he's going to use an example of Beisham and Beisilo, whoever mentioned Beisham and Beisilo. So when, uh, when, uh, when you have a disagreement between Beisham and Beisilo, whether something is mutter or Aser, is something allowed or something prohibited? So Bishrael Salanter is of the opinion that both opinions are absolutely correct at the exact same time. Now, what exactly does that mean? So he gives an example, and hopefully it won't take uh, too much uh, a background to, uh, to present the, the example that he gives, but this is the example that he gives. So uh, he uses the case in the Gemara, it's a, it's a case in, uh, in Yavamas. So when Dafyami gets to Yavamas, everybody's familiar with the case. And then once Yavamas is over, you almost don't hear about it again for another seven years or so, six and a half years. So you swing back around to seven years probably. So you swing back around to, uh, to Yavamas. But the case is, is that generally, uh, if Ruven dies, so Shimon, Ruven dies without children, Shimon, his brother, has a mitzvah of Yibum to go ahead and marry Ruven's widow. Now, that mitzvah of Yibum applies only in the event that Shimon is allowed to marry Ruvain's widow, if Shimon is not allowed to marry Ruvain's widow because she's a relative of Shimon, so then there's no mitzvah of Yibum. So let's say, for example, Ruvain went ahead and married his niece, Shimon's daughter. So the Torah allows a man to go ahead and marry his niece. So Ruvain goes ahead and marries his niece, Shimon's daughter, and then Ruvain dies without children. So normally Shimon would have a mitzvah of Yibum to do, but Shimon cannot marry his own daughter. That's an issue of Isa. Yibum doesn't allow for that. And therefore there's no mitzvah of Yibum and uh, Shimon's daughter, who's the widow, she's free to marry whomever she pleases. Now let's add one more uh, element to that case. Ruben was married to his niece and to some other woman, a second woman. She's called the Tsaras Erva. So now when Ruben dies, so obviously, Shimon does not marry his daughter. That's the erva. That's the prohibited relationship. And there's a machlokus between Beishama and Beishilel, whether Shimon could marry his daughter's co-wife. That's the tsar. Tsar means a co-wife. So can Shimon marry his daughter's co-wife, or can he not? 
So Beisil is of the opinion, no, it's Asr. And once we say he's not allowed to, so it becomes the regular Isidoraita of marrying a sister-in-law. Outside, whenever the mitzvah of Yibam doesn't apply, there's an Isidoraita to marry a sister-in-law, whether she's currently your sister-in-law or she was your sister-in-law, but either way, it's going to be Asr. So Beisil says that it's Asr, Isidoraita, Beishama is of the opinion that it's a mitzvah. That if Shimon goes ahead and marries his daughter's co-wife, he is Mekayim the mitzvah of Yibam, Mekayim the mitzvah the rights of Yibam, and will be able to get Ganeim. So this is a pretty fundamental machlokas. According to Beis Hillel, at the very least, if a person marries his daughter's co-wife, so he gets Karis, pretty severe punishment. According to Vesila, not only do you not get taras, is there not a punishment, but you actually get credited with the mitzvah you earn for yourself, Olam Haba. So this is probably as extreme a machlokas as you could possibly find. It's not like, uh, like the case that Ellen mentioned, are you going to light your candles one to eight or eight to one, right? In comparison, that's, that, that's nothing. That's a planetite, right? So what, what, what difference does it make? Eight to one, one to eight, that's, that's nothing. Here we're talking about on one end of the spectrum, it's taras. On the other end of the spectrum, you're getting got aided. So this is a pretty fundamental machlokas. It's not a very frequent uh, uh, shaila. I've been had this shaila in about uh, 20 years. Just kidding. But it's not a very frequent shaila, but it's something which is pretty fundamental philosophically because what's the halacha? Either they, seemingly we would say, either Beishama is correct and it's a mitzvah daraisa, or Beishilel is correct and it's an isa daraisa, but it's got to be one or the other. Once again, if there's a faithfulness in the transmission of the Mesorah, so that means either Beishama is correct or Beishola is correct, but they can't both be correct. Something can't both be a mitzvah in a Naveira simultaneously. Comes along Rabbi Salsalandra and says, it's not true. Uh, halacha is very broad, and the same action of marrying the Tsaras Erva, marrying the daughter's co-wife, can actually be both a mitzvah as well as an Avera, it depends on which school you went to. If you went to a Beishamai school, so now you're, you're, you're obligated, you're compelled to follow the ruling of your Rosh Hashiva, of your Rav, of your Posek, who is Beishamai, and that would actually constitute a mitzvah. So if you, in this case, if you were fortunate enough to go to a Beishamai school and you married a Tzaras Erva, when you get to Shamai, you'll show them your uh, school ID. Your school ID will identify you as a Beishamai student, and they'll say, okay, with a Beishamai school ID, you take the elevator up, and you get Gan Eden for this mitzvah which you did. But if you show up for that exact same trial of marrying a Taras Erva, and they ask to see your school ID, and you pull out your Beishilel school ID, they'll say, so sorry, you're taking the elevator down. You're going to Gehenim, what you did is an Isidoraisa, you get the Gehenim for that, that's a punishment of Kares, because your Rebbe, your Rosh Hashiva, your Posek, is of the opinion that this is an Isidoraisa. So amazingly, uh, Rabbi Saul Salanti says that Halacha is such a broad, it has such a broad base to it, that you can have something which can simultaneously be a mitzvah or an Avera, depending on which school you went to. And it's not a contradiction at all, because that's the way things unfold. That's the way the Mesorah unfolds over time. They have to, that they have a different Mesorah as far as what it is. 
And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, when we use that phrase, Loba Shamayani, that Torah is not in heaven, meaning that it's, it's our domain to go ahead and decide. And not only do we decide what the halacha is and just hope that we get it right, but we actually decide what halacha is and what we decide, that becomes our reality. That becomes the reality of our existence, whether or not this thing is considered to be an Aveira or whether or not this thing is considered to be a, uh, a, uh, a, a, a mitzvah. And it can very well be the, the muscle, which I like to, uh, to give for this, which I think Stu will, uh, will appreciate, is it's uh, the danger that exists nowadays with, uh, with medicine and people being able to Google their symptoms or people being able to, uh, to Google their symptoms and deciding on their own, self-medicating on their own, because they read an article somewhere online which said that if you have these conditions, so if you take this medication, it'll be really helpful. And without really knowing much about medicine, you find out that a person has similar symptoms and they took that medication and you decide, well, if it worked for them, it must be good enough for me. That's a very dangerous thing to go ahead and start self-medicating because you read somewhere that somebody said that this is going to be, uh, this is going to be okay. So you want a professional who's going to go ahead and uh, make that decision for you, not go ahead and make it for yourself because the same medication for one person may prove helpful but that same medication for a different person with a different medical history and a different medical background may very well be very dangerous for them. So there isn't a thing as something being universal for everybody is going to apply, is going to work equally well for everybody. It depends on who you are, what you are, what your medical history is. And some medications work for one group of people, some medications they work for a different group of people. And you don't want to start mixing up those medications because mixing up those medications could be something which is extremely, extremely uh, 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 dangerous. So that is the approach that Rabbi Yisrael takes to this uh, to this idea, and that's why um, it's uh, it's very important to uh, to be mindful of the fact that when uh, um, that uh, people do this in halacha also uh, also now because uh, the availability online, but uh, you find yourself in whatever difficult circumstance that you're in, and you start talking to a friend about it. Oh, I'm in this situation. This is the halachic shayla that I'm dealing with. The person says, oh, I had that shayla. My cousin had that shayla. My sister-in-law had that shayla. And I remember when she had that shayla, she asked the rabbi, and the rabbi told her to do this. So you say, so, well, if the rabbi said that this is okay, it must be that it's okay. And they go ahead and they ask based on that because your neighbor's sister-in-law's cousin once had a similar shayla and they went ahead and they did it. So if it's good enough for your neighbor's sister-in-law's cousin to do, it must be that it's good enough for you not realizing that the neighbor's sister-in-law's cousin may be Kemani, I don't know, something like that. And therefore, for them, they have their set of halachas, they have their misora and their way of deciding halacha, and you are not Kemani. And if you're not Kemani, that's not the frame of reference. That's not, not how halachic decisions are going to be made for you. And therefore, to go ahead and do like them, because you read it online or somebody told you that that's, uh, that's good enough, so then you get to Shemayim and they say, can I see your school card? Can I see your school ID? And your school ID says, I'm Ashkenazi through and through. And they'll say, well, I'm so sorry, but the halacha you followed was a Kemani halacha. And this Kemani halacha for you is something which is in a Sidaraisa. We're so sorry that you got this bad information, but it's bad information. And uh, it's too late now. So without knowing exactly how these things work, so it becomes a very dangerous endeavor to go ahead and start Costuming on your own or reading on a website or speaking to another person saying, well, if it, if it works, if it's good enough for them, it must be that it's going to be good enough for me in, this, in my circumstance. 
So that is the same thing as somebody says, to you, oh, you've got a headache here, take this medication, my doctor prescribed for me. But yeah, it'd be foolish to go ahead and, and do such a thing because who knows what their medical history is, who knows what your medical history is, and to go ahead and take somebody else's medication is really not a wise thing to, uh, to go ahead and, uh, and do. So that is the point that Rabbi Sraw makes as far as uh, these things are concerned, that says that it's actually possible, as amazing as that is, it's actually possible for two opinions, which are exclusive, uh, mutually exclusive of one another. An isa or a mitzvah daraisa is possible for both of them to be true, but it depends on which school you went to, or who your rebbe is, who your rav is, and who all of that uh, that, uh, that that stuff is. So that is what uh, what he says. Now, getting back to your uh, your uh, your question, Alan, the original question about the shama mitzvah with Hanukkah candles going eight to one or one to eight. So the way uh, I would explain that uh, the machlokas is. So first of all, that's not something which is a daraisa. Hanukkah candles is drabanan rather than a daraisa. So, uh, so it, it may not be part of this uh, uh, this uh, this uh, this discussion, but it's still an important shiloh because where did the machlokas stem from? Where did they get their opinions from? So this is like we said uh, before in the, the second explanation that the machlokas stems from the fact that there's going to be a mitzvah. To commemorate something over the course of eight days. So, how do we go ahead and commemorate things over the course of eight days? Do we go ahead and do we say we know that there's a halachic principle called malim bekodesh v'lomo reading? We go up in matters of kedusha rather than going down. Sfirasa omer, which we're in the middle of now, so we're counting up rather than down. So maybe on the one hand we have a principle which says we should count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, but we have a competing principle. Which is the uh, the korbanos, which are brought on Sukkot, where we start off with a higher number and we work our way down. And interestingly enough, in that instance, when we start at the higher number and count our way down, don't count down to one, but we count our way down, it's also an eight day yantif. If you include Shrinat Saras as part of Sukkot, so it's also an eight day yantif. So we already have an eight day yantif, which includes numbers, and the numbers go down rather than up. So now, they, uh, as Beishamay Beisilo gathers in the McCormick uh, place, I think we're, there are lots of students there, they have a convention of Beishamay and Beisilo in McCormick place, in the, in the smoke-filled room, where they're going to go ahead and they're going to debate. So they now decide, yes, there is a mitzvah which Chazal uh, want to institute during the time of the second Beishamitosh to light Hanukkah candles to commemorate the, uh, the miracle, and the ideal form of doing so is not going to light the same one, same number every night, that somehow we're going to mark the passage of time from night one to night two to night three. So what now is the best precedent we have in order to instruct us how to do that in the optimal manner? Should we apply the principle of Malin Makotis Viloma reading? We go up in matters of Kedusha rather than going down. That's one approach. And all the Basil people say, you're here, you're here, you're here. They were all uh, in favor of that. And then you have, on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the room, you have the Beishalai people who are saying, wait a minute, that's a beautiful principle, Malin, because of Roma reading, but we have precedent elsewhere that we go from a higher number down to the lower number. On an eight-day holiday, which also is, uh, is something which, is, uh, which, is, uh, which uh, should, not be, uh, should not be overlooked. So the debate was, 
we have two recognized uh, precedents in halacha to guide us how to go ahead and structure the mitzvah of Hanukkah lights. And there was no, neither one was so compelling that they were able to convince the other one to change their opinion. So that's why that became something which was another one of that irreconcilable uh, machlokasin between Beit Shammah and Beit Sarot, which the Gemara ultimately goes ahead or the Basco goes ahead and passed for us that we're going to follow Beit Sarot over Beit Shammah. But ultimately it was something which was uh, a debate which where both of them, both opinions were formulated based on recognized and uh, 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 and authoritative halachic principles. And the question was, just how, what, how are you going to call it? Are you going to call it as uh, better to go one to eight? You're going to call it as better to go eight to one? And it, it was a matter of just the which, which principle they felt was more applicable over the other. Okay. Now, the last part, the second part, which, uh, which we need to, uh, to discuss, uh, the last two minutes that we have, is what the, the Rambam goes and emphasizes that the Torah as we have it, and here we'll focus our attention a little bit more on Torah Shabbat Sav rather than Torah Shabbat Pat, but the Torah we have it was uh, faithfully transmitted from Akash Baruch to Moshe Rabbeinu and from Moshe Rabbeinu to us, and Moshe Rabbeinu did not change anything or did he insert any of his own ideas or any of his own interpretation to what exactly was, uh, was going on. And in that regard, this is something which goes back to a principle or two ago, where we said that Moshe Abenu's nevuah, his prophecy was unique in the fact that his prophecy was something which was clear, not subject to interpretation, whereas the other Nevi'im, when they went ahead and they got their prophecy, so they got a fuzzy screen. Think of uh, you know watching a television show back in the 70s when the antenna wasn't in the right location, and it was sort of fuzzy and you bang the side of the television or you move around the antenna for 25 out of the 30 minutes of the TV show, only the commercials come in clearly, but the TV show is, uh, is notoriously, it's, uh, it's all fuzzy. So some of the details you have to go ahead and you have to fill in on your own because you just can't see. So the brain does that automatically for us anyways, that we go ahead and we take a little bit of information and we go ahead and we formulate an entire story out of that small bit of information. So Nevoah for most Nevi'im worked in that same way, that they got some information, but there was still a bit of interpretation which was involved before they went ahead and they, uh, they, they shared it. But uh, Moshe Avenu did not do that. The exact words in the exact sentences which Hashem said to Moshe Avenu is what Moshe Avenu shared with us. And there was no interpretation, there was no deviation, there was no embellishment, there's no exaggeration on Moshe Rabbeinu's part. That's what we said. If you remember that Moshe Rabbeinu was a faithful secretary or um, stenographer, or what was the other word that uh, they used? Transcriber. Transcriber. So he was a, thank you. He was a faithful transcriber whose job it was is just to record what was said and not to, not to, uh, to complete uh, any of that. Now, in this regard, so the, um, the animamin version of this can be a little bit misleading. Remember, the animamin version is a, is a shortened version of the 13 principles of the Rambam, but they weren't actually written by the Rambam himself. It was written by somebody later on. So in the translation, of it, uh, the translation it says, I believe with complete faith that the entire, entire Torah, which is now in our possession, 
is the same as that which was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, may he rest in peace. So if you take that literally, it would sound like that the Sefer Torah, which we pull out of the Aram yesterday, and we'll put out on Thursday, and then on Shabbos, has the exact same letters and the exact same wording as the original Sefer Torah, which was written by Moshe Rabbeinu, that he got from, from HaKadosh Baruch But we know that that's not true. We know that our Sefer Torah is not necessarily exactly the same as the Sefer Torah, which was the original Sefer Torah, which was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. One example is, the Gemara tells us that when Ezra went back to Eretz Yisrael in the, the beginning of the second Besamitash era, so what he did was, one of the reasons he's called Ezra HaSofer is he found three scrolls, three ancient Sefer Torah, ancient in his time, the ancient Sefer Torah, and he went ahead and he examined them. All of these Sefer Torah were considered to be valid in Kasha Sefer Torah, and when he went ahead and did an analysis of the three Sifrei Torah, he found discrepancies. And that they weren't consistent all the way through. And sometimes there was a hey, and sometimes there was an aleph, and he found differences between them. And he went ahead and he decided that he was going to go ahead and write what he considered to be an authoritative Sefer Torah based on whatever the majority of those Sifrei Torah said. As I said, sometimes they're, they're usually it was just a slight discrepancy in terms of spelling, not one which changes the meaning of the words, not one which changes the context or the uh, or the halakhas which are going to emerge from it, but these minor changes in terms of how things are going to be spelled. So he went ahead and made the executive decision about how he was going to uh, to decide that. Best two out of three would go ahead and decide those uh, matters. And then he wrote what was now considered to be the most reliable Sefer Torah, but we can't say with absolute certainty that this is the exact same writing, the exact same lettering that Moshe Rabbeinu received when he was at, at Harsinai. And if you look at Hilchah Sefer Torah, one of the major issues about whether or not to pull out a Sefer Torah that has a mistake in favor of another Sefer Torah, so much of the discussion revolves around the question, how do you know that that second Sefer Torah is any more reliable than the one you just found the mistake in? Because we don't really know which extra letters or missing letters should be there or shouldn't be there. Sometimes you spell the word with the yud there. Sometimes the word is spelled without the yud. Sometimes there is a vav at the end. Sometimes there isn't a vav at the end. There's all sorts of different ways that you could spell the same word by adding or subtracting a letter. And Chazal already tell us that we don't really, we're, we're no longer considered to be experts in even the simple task of counting the letters of a Sefer Torah. Even that's no longer considered to be reliable. So clearly we don't have, when they, in the, when we say that we, that what we have is what Moshe Rabbeinu received at Har Sinai, it doesn't mean literally that every last letter which you find in our Sefer Torah is the exact replicate of the Sefer Torah which was written by, by Moshe Rabbeinu. And one could get that erroneous, uh, reach that erroneous conclusion from the Animamin but that's not actually that would not be uh, that would not be accurate. Rather, what we mean is is that the words in the the basic words and the basic ideas are all from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and the main emphasis is the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu did not insert any of his uh, his own interpretation into the process at all. So we may have an extra yod or be missing a yod. We may have an extra vav or be missing a vav, but that's not nothing which is going to change the meaning 
which, uh, which exist. And if you look, and people have done these uh, studies, you look at Sifrei Torah from all sorts of different communities, which have been scattered, scattered around the world. And many of them have been out of touch with other communities for centuries and centuries. And when they start doing a comparative analysis of their Sifrei Torah, very few discrepancies. And almost always, those discrepancies are minor and don't change the meaning of the words. And don't change the meaning of the psukim. And that itself is an incredible testament to the reliability and the faithfulness of our transmission of the Messorah, that despite the fact that certain communities have not been, you know, in touch with, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Eastern Europe or Western European countries or Northern African countries, whatever it happens to be, the side of countries, nonetheless, the Sifrei Torah are almost exactly the, uh, uh, are almost exactly the same. And this is the reason why this is such an important principle uh, to keep in mind in terms of making it one of the 13 principles of faith is that if it was possible that somebody could come along and say, even from the very outset, that Moshe Benu inserted his own interpretation and his own bias and his own subjective opinions into the transcribing of the Torah, so then that makes the whole, the whole totality of Torah now becomes undermined. Everything becomes lost because once we say that it was based on a bias or it's based on some whatever it happens to be, so that takes away from the divinity of Torah. And once the Torah is not 100% divine, so now every person can come along and they can decide that, well, this mitzvah, Moshe Rabbeinu went ahead and inserted because of based on what was going on back in the year 2448, but that's no longer relevant in our more sophisticated more advanced and more educated 21st century uh, 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 circumstances in which we find ourselves, our enlightened positions that we have uh, nowadays. And therefore, one by one, you could start going ahead and taking away this mitzvah, which makes you uncomfortable, and that mitzvah, which makes you uncomfortable, and this mitzvah, which makes you uncomfortable. And one by one, you could start going ahead and getting rid of the, uh, the whole thing. So this principle is, uh, this one is, is clearly an essential part of our belief system because if you don't have this principle which says that we don't change the Torah and that the Torah we have was, uh, was a subjective presentation by Moshe Rabbeinu rather than the objective presentation from God, so then you might as well just toss the whole thing. The whole thing is now just uh, you know, jello in our hands or putty in our hands and a Play-Doh and we can go ahead and you can make it into whatever shape you want and you could uh, make it into whatever belief system you want and you can do with it uh, as you please. So that's why this is such a, uh, an important fundamental uh, uh, principle. And this leads us into, which we'll talk about next week, which is the last, the principle nine is the last of the middle section of principles having to do with the divinity of Torah. That's going to be the immutability of the Torah. The fact that it's not possible for it to change just because it's divine in its origin doesn't necessarily mean that it cannot change later on. So next week, Yom Hashem, we'll start the uh, the ninth principle, which has this uh, discussion about the uh, the immutability of Torah and how the fact that the Torah is uh, also cannot be uh, cannot be changed. And that's what I got for y'all. Um,